the center of Vienna and driving out of the center in the general direction south of Vienna. It will be about a 20-25 kilometer drive to this small village of Laxenburg. It's a suburb of Vienna. We've just passed the Albertina Museum, one of the major art museums in Vienna, and right across the street from that was the Vienna State Opera House, one of the two or three most famous opera houses in the world. And just down the street from the opera, in fact, essentially across the street, is the Hotel Sacher, which is noted for his famous Austrian cake, the Sacher Torte. We're just now waiting in a traffic light to go across the Ringstrasse to toward the direction of Schwarzenbergplatz, where there's a grand monument to the Second World War, put up by the Russians, actually, after the war was over. This was the Russian section of Vienna at that time. Hello, John. Hi, it's Hi. great to see you it's again. Nice to meet you. Yeah, a long time. A long, long time. time. So, what are you doing here? Oh, Are I'm you? visiting for three months uh, oh, yeah. one system analysis project and working on what? Uh, modeling optimization simulation. Oh, fantastic. Just business as usual. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, that's good. I haven't been to this place for about five years now. Okay. Um, you know, I, I still live in Vienna most of the time. Oh, you really? But I started a research center there of my own. I've been very busy in Vienna. I just walked into the Schlossplatz in front of the palace that now houses the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis. And quite surprisingly and happily, I ran into my friend Alexei Gavaransky, who's a researcher that I have known decades and haven't seen him for at least a decade or two. It was a very great pleasure to uh, see each other and give some greetings and talk about old and new times. The institute is in an old hunting palace that belonged to Maria Theresa in 1973 and was given over for this International Systems Analysis Research Center. It was given by the Austrian government and the government of Lower Austria, the state of Lower Austria. I managed to come there myself because the year before, in 1972, I was working at a research center of the Soviet Academy of Sciences in Moscow on an exchange program between the U.S. National Academy of Science and the Soviet Academy. By chance, the kind of chance that turns the course of a person's life, the head of my institute was the main negotiator from the Soviet side for this center because it was an east-west research center, U.S., USSR, and 10 junior partners, countries of eastern, western Europe and Japan and Canada, when I was in Moscow, my uh, boss told me about this center and asked if I would like to come there. So in uh, June of 1973, I came to Austria, to Vienna, and have been in and out of Vienna ever since for the last 44 years.
So last episode, we talked about complexity gaps, and I promised that we would discuss how you would survive an X event and how you might even become not just a survivor but a beneficiary. And this leads into the notion of the resilience of a system. Fundamentally, resilience means the ability to not just return to what you were doing before. That would be more like stability. You get pushed away from what you were doing and eventually you return to what the past. Resilience is more in the category of being disturbed or pushed away from what you were doing, but the system doesn't get destroyed. It has to reconfigure itself, it has to restructure its way of organization. And in order to do that, it has to assimilate the shock that comes from the extreme event. You have to think about what are the resources that the organization has and think in this new environment after the shock, how might we use those resources in a more productive way? This is the essence of a system being resilient. It can continue to not only survive but function after the shock, but maybe in a different mode of operation. And that's very different than stability. But, what's my phone? Hello, hello. Hello. Hi, Lawrence. How are you doing? When I arrived at the Institute in 1973, there were several different groups in the Institute. Mine happened to be the mathematical analysis group. We were providing backup support for the applied projects. And one of the applied projects was one on ecology, ecological systems. It was headed by a well-known Canadian ecologist named Buzz Hawley. They were very concerned and interested in the problem of if you disturb an ecological system, animals, trees, whatever, does it come back from the disturbance? Not necessarily to exactly where it was before, but does it survive the disturbance and continue on in a reasonably healthy way? This was where the notion of resilience came into play, maybe even the first time that this term was actually used in the systems business. We had a major international workshop in the Institute the next year, 1974, where people came from not just ecological systems, but energy systems, economic systems, mathematical modeling groups, and so on. And we spent uh, several days talking to each other about possible ways of addressing this question of resilience. So this is not a new topic. Recently, in the systems business, it got a lot of attention, and people were thinking, uh, oh yes, resilience, that's what we need to figure out, which we do, but like a lot of things in the real practical world, all of the ideas were already anticipated decades earlier, and this is where it happened here in this institute. We're standing in front of a monument in Vienna that many people don't know about. It's a district heating plant that supplies hot water to districts of the city. 
It was transformed by the artist Friedensreich, Hundertwasser, some years ago, into some magical piece of fantastic realism. I'm looking right now at the exhaust tower from this heating plant that's been modified and artistically adjusted to look like a building that you imagine seeing in some kind of a dream. A tower with a brown, bulbous center with windows for observations. It's gold, and the tower itself is blue, and it's just unbelievable. What we're seeing is something that fits into the general framework of resilience, which involves, first of all, being aware of changes that are needed because of changing environmental circumstances. Secondly, to assimilate the changes so that the system doesn't get destroyed, but rather gets transformed in some meaningful way. And then you have to be agile enough in order to be ready to make those transformations. You can't be locked in place. And you have to have some idea of how to use the resources at your disposal to be adaptive to make the change to something new and better that actually still may perform the same function. This plant that we're looking at, it still performs the same function as before. It heats water and sends it around the city. But instead of being some dull penitentiary looking place, it's a piece of art. What I mentioned just now are the four A's of awareness, assimilation, agility, and adaptation. If you successfully negotiate each of those steps, you have in your hand a resilient system. But that doesn't always happen. For one reason or another, you may not be able to successfully deal with each of these stages, in which case usually your system is destroyed. It crashes, it crashes and burns. In that case, it's still not fatal because you can wipe away something that's, let's say, not working anymore. It might be social structures, it might be a building, it might be some other kind of system. In the short term, this destruction may be something quite negative. But in a longer term perspective, it usually turns out to be something quite fine because the destruction phase opens up all sorts of new niches that didn't exist before because they were being filled by the system that got destroyed. Now those niches are open for new products, new ideas, new services, new kinds of thinking, if you like. It's what we usually call human progress. These kinds of destructive events, you could describe them by the phrase of Joseph Schumpeter, famous Austrian economist from the early part of the 20th century. He called this process creative destruction. In order to create something new, you essentially have to destroy something old. For some concrete examples of creative destruction, or more in the category of resilience, you might think of some of the world's biggest companies like Microsoft or Apple that started their lives doing one thing, realized it wasn't working, and were agile and adaptive enough that they were able to shift over to doing something else. Apple started their life as a personal computer manufacturer, Macintosh and the Apple II, but they were actually down pretty low on the ladder of successful computer manufacturers. Then Steve Jobs came back to the company and said, well, maybe our business is really not computing. Maybe our business is communication. 
and developed the idea of the smartphone in 2007. It started 10 years ago. It's now the world's biggest company by capitalization. Microsoft had a similar experience. It started its life processing traffic data in the state of Washington. The government decided to take over that job. So this essentially put Microsoft right on the edge of bankruptcy. And they said, well, how can we use our skills to do something else? Luckily, personal computer was developing in those times, and they used their skills to create the MS-DOS operating system, which they sold to IBM. IBM gave them rights to it, and now that was a fateful moment for Microsoft and turned it into, again, one of the largest companies. But it can go in the other direction, too. Kodak is a good example. So is Nokia. Companies that were at the top of their game, Nokia used to be the world's biggest cell phone manufacturer but they didn't keep up with the technology, and they mostly didn't keep up with what was going on in North America. They didn't adapt to the smartphone technology soon enough, and pretty soon they got pushed off, not only pushed off center stage, essentially pushed off the whole business. And they didn't develop any new business out of it. You could get a similar story for Kodak. They were the main company in color photography, manufacturing film mostly. They refused to adapt to the change into smartphones and cameras in phones and eventually digital film. And they're now just a shadow of their former self. They still exist, but they're just a niche player now. They don't dominate any market. So far, we've been looking backward and looking at things like X events, complexity gaps, social mood, staying alive, resilience, creative destruction, and so on. In the last episode, we'll take a look at the future and try to get a glimmering of understanding on how to anticipate X events and how to manage them rather than imagining you can prevent them. <laughs>